0: Uh, Right, when we return in our Bibles to uh, page 1217, we're in the book of 1 Peter. We are in the book of 1 Peter. The uh, title of this morning's sermon is this, Purity in Exile, Purity in Exile Leading to a Posture of Holiness, of Purpose, and of Love. Purity in Exile Leading to a Posture of Holiness, Purpose, and Love. And we pick this up in uh, verses 13 in 1 Peter chapter 1. And it says this. Therefore, with minds that are alert. Page 1217. 1 Peter 1 verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober. And let's just pause there. The King James Version says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Therefore, preparing your mind... For action, the ESV tells us. Up until this point, Peter's been unpacking as exiles. Exiles is another term for Christian people living in a community or communities where predominantly they are not Christian. Uh, This was written to the church in modern-day Turkey. And so the connection for us here is that as Christians in Dorset, in BCP, we are exiles. We are exiles living in this land. And Peter already tells these exiles, as he would tell Christians this morning, and a reminder, and what we've already been told over the last couple of weeks is, be happy and clap. You have much to rejoice about. Know that you have purpose because the God of the Bible has called you and has chosen you. And he, he, he communicates the riches of all these truths to the exiles. And then he says here, Therefore, with minds that are alert, prepare your minds, or as I like in the King James Version, gird up the loins of your minds. This is intentional picture language that Peter is using here. Because to gird up your loins, old in the, during the time that this was written, men would have worn long robes. And so if they were to be needed to be ready for action or movement, they would need to have girded up their loins, picked up their robes, tucked them in so they could be ready to move, ready for action. And Peter says this, Exiles, in, in, in light of all that I've written, gird up the loins of your minds. Now, if I was to put an easel here and put a blank canvas and to give each and every one of you a paintbrush, and I was to say to you right now, I would like for you to paint the posture of the ideal Christian, what posture would you paint the Christian? What would it look like? Would they be standing up straight? Would they be, you know, bent over? Would they be sat down, lying down? What would the posture of the ideal Christian look like if I was to ask you to paint it? on their knees. John Bunyan in his book, Pilgrim's Progress, wrote about a person by, called Christian who went on an adventure. And the, and the illustrator, if you put up the next slide, shows how they painted um, the person in this book. It should come up shortly. But he was someone with a backpack, someone who was moving, someone who had their head in the Bible, Now, here's another challenge. If I was to ask someone in your community who you do life with, who you live with, to paint your posture as a Christian, what would they paint? What would it look like? You see, folks, communication, as we know, is 10% is only what we say. 90% is about body language and tonality, You communicate a message of the gospel as exiles by the posture of your bodies, by how you conduct yourselves, and by what you do. And so here's my question. Are you alert, Christian? Have you girded up the loins of your mind? Or if the non-Christian was to paint you, what would your posture be? Would you be on a sun lounger, on a Caribbean cruise, just chilled out? Or would you have some sense of purpose and movement and action? And so I want to unpack three postures that I think Peter makes clear for us in these next verses. And that is, as an exile, we're to have a posture of holiness. That we are to have a posture of purpose and fear. And we're to have a posture of love for one another. Holiness, purpose, and love. And as I've been preparing this message this week, it's the posture of purpose and fear, the one that really stands out to me. And so I'll expend, I will spend some extended time in that particular point. But all three of these are to come together. So let's go. Paintbrush in hand, blank canvas. Let's paint a picture. So the first point is this. Purity in exile is to lead to a posture of holiness. And let's carry on in verses 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, But just as he called you as holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And if you turn the page to chapter 2, he closes the section by saying again, Therefore, exiles, rid yourselves of all malice, of all deceit, of all hypocrisy, of envy and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So the first thing I would say often, this is not just an issue the exiles have, but I would say it's an issue we have as people in our workplaces and in other areas of life, is that we focus too much on outcome and don't put enough emphasis on the application. Um, And the danger is to do this here. We can say, let's go and be holy as God is holy. That's the outcome And we can chase after the outcome, only not to get it, because we don't become holy by purely focusing on holiness. We become holy by applying ourselves in a certain way. And if we do that, the outcome will be holy. For example, Peter tells us here to be self-controlled or to have a mind that is fully sober. So what does he say? He says, Christian exile living in this land. Don't let your mind be intoxicated with foolish thinking. Or it could mean don't let your mind continually be intoxicated with liquor. Don't have a mind, in other words, like the old Western movie Barn Doors. Have you seen those? Just open in and out all the time. Some of your minds are like that. You let anything come in and anything comes out. That's not what the mind of an exile is to be like. A sober mind is like a vault. I will choose very specifically what I allow to enter my mind and my conscious thinking. So when I have a spare moment in the evening, and I have an option. I can, watch, I can watch Keep Up With The Kardashians or I can read the Bible. Where am I going to go? Keeping Up With The Kardashians, you may say it doesn't intoxicate your mind. That's amazing. We'll pray for you at the end. But it's that choice that we can make as exiles. What do we do when we have our spare time? What do we read? What do we allow to come in? What movies do we watch? Is it wholesome and edifying? Is your mind fully sober? The second thing is to set your hope fully, note the word fully, not partially, on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Folks, when Jesus was cut, he bled you and me. Why? Because Jesus was all in. There was no plan B So exile, if you were to be cut, do you bleed Jesus? Or are you just partially involved? You see, the exile is to place all their chips on Christ, not to hold anything back. The exile is to burn their bridges once they've decided to follow Jesus, not to keep their toe in the water of something else. We are to set our hopes fully in Christ, not partially Thirdly, we are to be obedient children, not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. Peter uses strong language here, ignorance. He was saying you didn't know so you don't know what you don't know, right? When you were a non-Christian, you didn't know all the ways that were required of you as an exile, but now you do. You don't live in ignorance anymore. And so he says, be obedient children. Listen, when you read stuff in scripture, do you apply it to your life? Or do you only apply it with a footnote, when I feel like it, or if it's comfortable? Or are you all in, Christian? And then he goes on to say at the end in chapter 2, is there anything within that section that is part of your life? Are you a person, exile, who is deceitful? Do you conceal or misrepresent the truth? Have you done that this morning? Or do you live a life of hypocrisy? That's acting language, which is to put on an act, to be something or someone you're not. Do you act like somebody you're not? Do you envy? Do you have resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions, someone else's qualities, or just someone else's downright good luck in life? Do you envy that? Or is there slander of every kind in your life? Do you make false and damaging statements about other people? Folks, if you do, you don't have a posture of holiness. You're not living purity in exile. And so Peter would say this, have a posture of holiness, be obedient, be self-controlled. Don't slander. And guess what? The outcome of that will be holiness. That's how you attain holiness. By applying yourself in a particular way. And you would, in other words, be holy just as God is holy. So the first posture is a posture of holiness. How's your posture doing? Great question to ask. The second thing then Peter unpacks for us as purity in exile should lead to a posture of purpose and a posture of fear. 1 Peter 1 verses 17 to 21, it says this, Through him, you believe in God. You raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and your hope are now in God. Purity in exile should lead to a posture of purpose and fear. Peter explicitly says there in verses 17, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent Fear. On the the picture to the left is a gentleman by the name of Tom Boyle. Big chap. Um, Really interesting story, Tom Boyle. One day, him and his wife were driving in a car and they witnessed a road traffic accident. Uh, Tom didn't see it himself, but his wife did. He heard the panic in his wife's voice. They said, Oh my goodness, have you seen it? Have you seen it? Have you seen it? And Tom said, Seen what? And his wife had seen a cyclist by the name of Kyle Holtrust get hit head-on by a Chevy Camaro in the States. Tom reacted to this um, incident, and he got straight out of the car. He ran to the scene, and he saw that Kyle Holtrust was stuck underneath the full weight of a Chevy Camaro he noticed the front wheels were elevated slightly off the ground and he could hear Tom, so he could hear Kyle Holtruss scream, get me out, get me out. With an absolute clear sense of purpose, fearing that Kyle was going to die, Tom decided to do something. He tried to lift up the Chevy Camaro, weighing 3,700 pounds. And he picked it up. (laughs) Hot iron in his hand, and while he's continuing—this is a true story, by the way—you can Google it—as he's lifting up the car, he hears Kyle say, "I'm still stuck. More, more. I need help. I need help. Get me out!" And then the other driver who hit him, Tom, calls him and he pulls him out from under the Chevy Camaro. And Kyle was in a bad shape. He was conscious but and alive, but he was in a bad way, and he required months and months of rehab but he survived and he pulled through. Now, although that chap Tom nearly tripled the, the world record for deadlifting in one incident, he wasn't about to go and be an Olympic sportsman the very next day. Because no matter how much money you were to pay Tom after the event, there's no way he could have repeated that incident. He could have repeated that feat. The next day he worked, he returned to work as a shop supervisor. It's a really remarkable story. Uh, And there are other stories like it. But what you find in certain moments in life in that, in ordinary circumstances, you see, our minds and our bodies, they shut down well before we reach our limits. We have an inner protective mechanism called the ego or the self, which helps to protect us against pain, against fear, or against fatigue. And often we do that so we don't injure ourselves or that we, so that we don't completely deplete ourselves of all of our reserves. Perhaps it's a survival thing going down the ages. But when faced with extraordinary circumstances, i.e. when someone's life is literally on the line, we are capable of overriding such barriers, pushing ourselves to limits we never thought possible before. And some of you perhaps have done that in your own personal recreational pursuits. And so the question must be asked, what if, if there was a way to harness this type of ability, not just in these moments, but in everyday life? What if we could overcome fear, fatigue, and pain on a daily basis and achieve things we never thought previously possible? And that was a question that really gripped Dr. Victor Stretcher in Michigan in the States. You see, Dr. Stretcher, the gentleman in the middle, he was no um, alien to pain himself. Uh, in his local town, he's a very successful entrepreneur. He is a lecturer. He is well thought of in his community. But his story is also a tragic story, because at 14 months old, his daughter Julia, contracted chicken pox, and it was a very severe bout of chickenpox that attacked her heart. The heart quickly began to fail, and she needed a miracle. She needed a new heart. On Valentine's Day in 1991, Julia underwent one of the first pediatric heart transplants in the States, and it worked. She had a miracle. As I'm sure um, you might appreciate that a parent whose child has, they've had severe illness for a child can often be quite nervous if they get ill again. And that was, they said that was their story. Um, they tried not to act in it, but at age nine, Dr. Stretcher and his wife noticed that Julia was unwell again. And this time they thought something was different, and so they took her to the hospital. And they were confronted with the worst possible news, that her heart was failing. And she needed another miracle, another heart Back to sleepless nights in the ICU. She got one. So she got her second heart at age nine. Now, Julia grew into a young and beautiful, uh, a beautiful young lady. Everything was going well. Age 19, she was in her first year of nursing, and the family were out in the Dominican Republic in spring break celebrating and resting. Julia came out with her boyfriend, and everything was going amazingly well until it wasn't. Because at age 19, her heart just stopped and she passed away on vacation. And one broken heart led to another. Because when Dr. Stretcher's daughter died, his heart also died. Because he lost his sense of purpose and he lost his sense of fear. Three months after that event, on a lake, on a retreat, Dr. Stretcher, right right, as he paddled out at 5 a.m. in the morning, sobbing his eyes out there, he recognized how empty he was because he had no purpose in life, there was nothing in his life that he feared, and so that he had to work towards or work for, and then he had an epiphany. He thought if he could rekindle his own sense of purpose, perhaps he could help others do the same thing, and so he wasted no time, and he got to research on the matter. He changed his sense of purpose, and he wanted to see every student that he taught as a lecturer, as his own daughter. And he wanted to love her and serve her well, as though that student was his own daughter. He says that over time, things still hurt, but he began to to pull through. But it was during his time researching, and he wrote a book on it called The Power of Purpose, that he discovered that throughout history, when people, now listen to this, a non-Christian guy, when people focus on a purpose greater than themselves, they can achieve far more than they ever thought possible. When they fear something or someone greater than themselves, they can push past barriers previously thought not possible. And he concluded, the reason for this is this. When we concentrate on something greater than ourselves, our ego, our self, is minimized. And as I've mentioned already, the role of the ego is to protect oneself. It is to stop before we get to a certain level. But if we can shut this ego down and overcome it, he realized we can break through into new areas of life. And what he discovered, therefore, was the power of self-minimization. Now, Tom Boyle's experience and Dr. Stretcher's scientific research, I believe, adds meat on the bones of what Peter is telling us to do. (laughs) Since you call on Father who judges each work impartially, live out your time as foreigners in reverent fear. Exile, have a selfless fear. Exile, have a selfless purpose. Like two pedals on a bicycle, these things will work together. And if we are able to reshape, refocus our sense of purpose and fear as exiles, then we too will push past things that we thought previously not possible. But the truth is, and as Elliot Clark writes in his book, Evangelism for Exiles, which is what we're basing a lot of this series on, which can be read as a book or you can download as an audio book on Audible, he says, as exiles... As Christians, we, we don't achieve things that we could or should because we have a misplaced sense of fear. And what he says is that we're so caught up in, our, in the 20th century of preaching the gospel, the blessings of Christ, the blessings of Christ. God is good, God is good, God is good. Come to Christ, he'll give you this, he'll lay that on, he'll pull you in, and all that stuff is true. But on the other side, you've got what? The reverent fear of God. You have judgment. What does Jesus say? Do not be afraid of him who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul. Jesus says this, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Exiles, I think that God wants to wake us up to a fresh sense of reverence. And I'm guilty of this. And I hear it in my own language. Sometimes I joke and I say things that are funny about the Holy Spirit or God. And, you know, I think, you know, Jesus, is, he's a father and he's a friend. And he, you know, he laughs with us in that sense of the room. But there's a time, where there's a, there's a time for reverence, isn't there? Do we know that with our own children? I love having a joke and a laugh with my, with, with my kids. But there's a time where they just need to know that I'm the father in the home. And I will act in a certain way for the good and protection of all of us. Does that make sense? So exile, have, we lost, have you lost your reverence for Christ? And Elliot Clark says, the answer is a resounding yes if you struggle to tell people in your community the truth of the gospel. If you are more concerned with what your friend, if you're more embarrassed about someone in your workplace knowing that you're a Christian than you are with the God of the Bible calling to be live a life on mission, you have a reverence problem. C.S. Lewis, um, in one of his books, The Chronicles of Narnia, Susan, in the, in the character, tells Mr. Beaver, thinking that um, Aslan is a man, not knowing that he's a lion, says to Mr. Beaver, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion, as I'm sure we all would. Susan asks Mr. Beaver is, if Aslan is safe, to which Mr. Beaver replies, Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He is the king. Folks, how is your posture of purpose? How is your posture of reverent fear? Does that need to be straightened up again today? Do you need to get out some cobwebs? Unclick the back? Maybe you need a brother in Christ just to get that knee in there and Oh, you know, straying out the back of reverence and fear. I'm not going to do that too many times. I'll probably need someone to help me out in a minute. Dr. Frankel, a Holocaust survivor and psychologist, says this The true meaning of life is to be discovered in the world rather than within man or his own psyche. Being human always points and is directed to something or someone other than oneself. The more one forgets himself by giving himself to serve, or another person to love, the more human he is and actualizes himself. You want to feel human? Fear God. If you want to feel human, have a purpose that is outside of yourself as exiles. Live in your community, not for your own personal sense of gain of what you can achieve, but how you can serve others and love them. And that, my friend, is exactly what Jesus did because he did not come to be served, but to. And he gave his life as a ransom for many if you want to know someone who completely died to himself look at the cross and likewise go and live a life of purpose and fear i want the holy spirit to really rest that on us today because i really believe that's a message for all of us and um, finally purity and exile therefore should lead to a posture of love so we have purity and exile leading to a posture of holiness. Purity of exile leading to a posture of purpose and fear. And now to a posture of love. Verses 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, for each other exile, would you please love one another deeply from the heart? No, just from the heart, not from the head. Not a theoretical love. I should be doing this because it's, because it's you know not from the hand I'm just going to serve you but from your heart for you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God for all people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field the grass withers and the flowers fall but the word of the Lord endures forever and this is the word that was preached to you finally then exile upon our Preceding postures communicated. Let's love one another. Not an abstract emotion of feeling, you know, that can, depending on which Sunday of the month you get me or what season it is. No, but a commitment. First of all, primarily to God. So we commit to God. We love Him because we know that He first loved us. He's committed to us. And then out of that, let's commit ourselves to one another a wholehearted posture of love amongst the XL group here at Gateway Church 502. And we've got to cultivate a village of support and love amongst the congregation because a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, right? Studies show in group settings, the impact of the person with the least motivation in a group has greater impact than the person who's trying to lead the group with a sense of motivation. In other words, for some of you in here who cannot be bothered to love one another, that will have a greater impact than the person standing here saying, let's love one another, people. It's true. For culture to change, studies suggest that you only need 7 to 10% of the group of people to face in a new direction to change the culture of that place. So there's, what, maybe 70 of us in the room. So maybe we need seven of us. If seven of us in this room decided to go wholeheartedly, all out, unashamedly, dying to oneself, purpose and fear, love for one another, my goodness, this whole congregation would look very different in a few months' time. Life is hard, isn't it? Forget being a Christian for one moment, but life is just generally difficult. I have hemorrhaged money this month on school activity bills, swimming, piano, paying everything a term in advance. It's horrendous. So you have to cut another ways and you've got to think, and you think you've got that going on, and then you've got this, and work, and travel, and life is just tricky, right? Life is tricky when you add to that being a Christian in today's world, isn't it? When your views are different to other people, should I share them? They're going to call me a bigot. I don't know. Is that going to come in sincere? I'm not sure. It is hard. So why don't we make it slightly easier for one another and love one another wholeheartedly. Let's not see each other by our performances, by our achievements. But why don't we see each other in Christ and go, you know what? Whatever you've done this week, give me a hug. (laughs) Why? Because I think you're great. I love you. And you cannot escape that. Um, If you want to lose weight this year or gain weight, whatever your preference, um, studies show if a friend of yours does it, then you're 50% more likely to do it with them. Or if you want to quit smoking this year, your chance of quitting increased by over 35% if you do it with somebody um, who is a friend. Because social influences are strong. And social influences have a profound impact on our behavior. Because culture eats strategy for breakfast. We could strategize this year about how we're going to love one another. You know, great example. We could, you know, the women's evenings. Brilliant. We could put the strategy in place. We'll do this and Prosecco and clothes swap. Footnote, I'm not really up for clothes swapping. Um, That's not my thing. But I think, you know, for others, that's good. End footnote. Um, we could do strategies, we could do this. But if we don't have a culture of love for one another, it's not going to change anything. There'll just be events. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. It's not the church with the largest collection of talent that will press into new territory for the gospel. But it's the church that comes together with a common purpose and fear of the Lord. So the significance of who we surround ourselves is really important because apathy and negativity are dangerous in the face of challenge. So let's support one another, yeah? Let's love one another. Can you just imagine for one moment, I know I get carried away with this stuff, but can you just imagine for one moment if for for a season of our life at 5.02, we decided to have this type of posture amongst us, that where our behaviors would be so radically different to the world around us. Generosity would just be, you know, obedience would just be, self-control would, you know, it would just where we'd have this kind of sense of fear and purpose, like a generic purpose. We would know that God's called all each and every one of us as his children. We are here to worship him. That's our main purpose. But then also a specific purpose for each and every one of us. And that was clear. And an out, and an overflow of that, we loved one another. Can you imagine what damage that would cause in our community for the gospel? It, it, honestly, it would be incredible. It would be absolutely incredible and I don't know about you, but I mean, I come to, I've, been to, I've been coming to church for 13 years. I'm, in, I'm, I'm, I'm approaching 40. This is crazy. I can't believe those words are coming out of my mouth. I've been doing this for years. And I've been coming to Sunday services for year after year after year, week after week after week. And I don't know about you, but I don't just want to come here and tick off another Sunday box to alleviate my guilt so I can go and be whoever I want to be Monday through Saturday. I've had enough of that. Paychecks come and go, people come and go. The word of the Lord remains forever. And I'm about doing something that's of everlasting. Because what does Peter say? This is about grass. Grass withers and the flowers fall, it comes and go. But guys, why don't we invest in something that's going to remain forever? You up for that? I don't know what 2020 holds for you. I have no idea. But I hope that we could come together as a village here at 502 with a wonderful posture of holiness, purpose and of love for one another and do something really crazy radical this year for the gospel. Amen. Because culture eats strategy for breakfast. Now, before I um, ask us to respond, let me just say one thing, because it's quite a heavy-hitting sermon. The truth is, if I was to hold up a mirror to everyone this morning, a posture mirror, and it would show over the past 12 months or past 12 hours your Christian posture, the truth is, all of our postures would be out of kilter. All of our postures are crooked. No one here has perfect spiritual posture in and of themselves. Only one person ever had perfect spiritual posture, and his name was Jesus. You got it. You know, when on the cross, what Jesus does is he takes our crookedness and he straightens it out. When we come to Jesus Christ, we say, Jesus, I don't have a posture of holiness. I don't have a posture of fear and purpose. I don't have a posture of love for one another. And he says, you know what? You can have mine, and I'll take yours, and I'll do that on the cross for you. And going back to this image here of the easel and the paintbrush, folks, the truth is, if you were to paint your own image of yourself, or if you if I, when I said to you the question, well, how would your friend paint you? I probably, the first thing that came into your mind was a negative thought. Am I right? Negative thought, because we have a real enemy who wants to discourage you, he wants to get you down. If I was to ask God the Father to paint a perfect, a, to paint a, a portrait of you here, you know what it would be? Absolutely perfect. Why? Because God doesn't see you in your sinful state. He sees Christ in you. And Christ is the straightest thing that has ever lived. And God the Father sees Christ in you and he says, you know what, lift up your head. Lift up your chin. In my eyes, you're absolutely bang on. I love you. Your posture through Christ is perfect. That, my friend, is the gospel. Why don't we stand and respond to this? Because everyone's going to have a chance to respond to this today. And we're going to respond to it in one of four ways. And I'm going to ask us to be really, really bold. And we're going to hold up our hand if one of these things are for us. And then we're going to pray. I'm going to pray for us. And the first thing is this. We get the gospel, exile. We know that Christ is in us, but we know that our posture of holiness has been a little bit out. Deceit, slander, envy, those things actually have reared their ugly heads. We haven't been, self, we haven't been obedient children. We haven't been sober-minded. And actually, we just want the Father, we just want, to, we just want to confess that to the Father now, and we want him to straighten us out from a holiness perspective. If that's you, why not you put your hands out, raise your hand, and let's pray together. I'll pray for you. Let's do that. Everyone's going to have a chance to respond. This is about us responding to the scriptures. Why don't you raise your hand if that's you? Put your hand out. Lord, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters here. Lord, I want to thank you that on the cross, you took all of the things that they shouldn't have done. You took all the things they didn't do that they should have done on you. And you've given them holiness and you've given them purity. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here who know they've lived a life over a season of time that hasn't been pure, that hasn't been self-obedience, where there hasn't been a sobriety of the mind. I pray you'd give them your grace this morning that they would know in you they are perfect and they are clean and they are pure. And I pray you'd give them a fresh new step. Amen. What about your reverence has just gone out the kilter. Jesus is more of a homeboy than he is a God of sovereign father, a sovereign king, rather. And you joke about the father, perhaps, in a way. You just know that God's pressing upon your heart reverence. That's a word for you. Or perhaps you've lost your sense of purpose in life. Why are you here? What are you doing? Where are you heading? And you want God to speak to you fresh. Why don't you raise up your hand and let's pray over you. If you want a fresh sense of purpose this morning... When you raise up your hand? Heavenly Father, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters here who've raised up their hand. Would you meet them? Would you remind them that they are your your children? That they have purpose in Christ? That you have specifically and individually chosen them to become more like you primarily? To worship you primarily? But secondary, you've given them a purpose in their community, in their workplaces, wherever they are. And Lord, would you reveal to them or remind to them Remind them a purpose that you've given them a long time ago as they just need to be reminded of this morning. And Lord, may they leave here with a fresh spring in their step of purpose because the God, the sovereign, reverent Father, you've chosen them. Amen. And then what about love for one another? You're here and you've just lost your love for one another. You've lost your love for... This. Yeah, band, please come up. You've just lost your love for the saints Oh, you just, you know what, you're here, but you're like, you know what, I can't be bothered to speak to him. He's driving me nuts. And I actually want to go, Lord, would you give me your love for this person? Would you give me your love for the local church? If that's you, why don't you raise up your hand, put your hand out. Folks, everyone should be responding to this. This one's for me, actually. I I need to hear this one. Oh, Heavenly Father, would you help us love one another from the heart? Would we be a congregation that doesn't love one another from the head. We wouldn't read books about love and put it into action, but we would feel in our heart of hearts, Jesus, that you love us and you died for us. And as an overflow of that, would we love our brothers and sisters? Lord, would you put that love afresh in our hearts today? Maybe for husbands and wives, you need to rekindle that love for one another. Friends, rekindle that love for one another. Parents and children, there needs to be a fresh Lord, would you do that work amongst us? Holy Spirit, would you come and help us love one another from the heart? And I pray if you've lifted up your hand or put up your hand, that you would leave here with a fresh sense of purpose, that you see afresh the gospel and you'll love one another. Amen? Right, final one, I promise. We're nearly there. This is good. It's good to do something different, right? But like Tim Robbins on Netflix. He says, you know, do something a bit different. Right. This is for those who perhaps you're looking, you're not part of our community of exiles. You don't love Jesus yet. And you want to be be part of a community that reveres God, that has purpose, that has a deep love for one another. You know what? I want that because most of all, I want Jesus. And you want Jesus this morning. If that's you, why don't you raise your hand and we'll pray over you that you'd accept the Lord Jesus Christ into your life. And then we're going to sing if that's you. Great. Fantastic. Got a couple of hands going up. Oh, Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that your Holy Spirit is present amongst us and you're drawing hearts right now into the kingdom of God. Now, there are people here this morning, those with their hands up saying, Jesus, I want you. I want to follow you because you died on the cross for me and I want to be belong to this community of exiles. And so would you pray in your hearts, Lord Jesus, I love you. I have sinned but you have forgiven me. And now I have been born again with imperishable seed. And I'm going to live a life of purpose and reverent fear. Because Jesus, I get that all from worshipping you. Amen. Church, are we ready to sing and respond? Let's sing and respond. If you have responded in any way and you want to chat to one of us, please do so. We'll be here on the side.